Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's podcast. I want to do something quite a bit different to start off 2023. A lot of the last year, 2022, was focused on figuring out what's going wrong, because a lot of things were going wrong. A lot of crypto protocols were blowing up, companies going bankrupt, horrible malfeasance by individuals, by entire sectors, and many assumptions and theses that we, as well as other investors, had around valuations, I mean, think about SoftBank and the prices there, around the types of companies that would succeed, around how they would exit, think about SPACs and IPOs, all of that was deeply challenged. And so 2022 for us was really focused on what are the learnings from all this destruction. Now, 2021, as you remember, was a year of COVID and boom in digital models, neobank models, robo-advisor models, payments technology models, and a lot of accrual of new users and e-commerce and so on. And so 2021 actually gave a preview of what a really optimistic future for digital finance could look like. And then if we roll back to 2020 and the years before that, it's really the emergence of Web3 and blockchain and the digital transformation of large financial incumbents. And so it feels like we've been in this mode of like trying to figure out what is going to happen in the up case, what are the good things and the possible outcomes? And then as we start to see those come to fruition, then we point to them. We say, look, it's right here. This is what we've been talking about all along. It's real. It's coming. And then as things fall apart, we say, these are the ways in which they fall apart. What can we learn from them? What should we take away even though there's so much pain? And so that's the last few years. And here we're sitting in 2023, and there are so many things that just feel wrong to focus on. You know, it feels wrong to focus on the promise of emerging technology. I mean, I'm sure we're going to spend a lot of time on generative artificial intelligence. We're going to spend a lot of time on the change in consumer behavior coming out of that. What are the different financial models that might come out of it? And that will be interesting and great and fantastic. But 2023 can't start with that. Like we have to get so much, so much more grounded into what this is all about. And the fintech blueprint, this podcast, what these conversations are meant to be about, they're meant to be about how to make things. Like what are the mental models, the blueprints, the instructions to making important new things. And it just so happens for us right now, those important new things, how do they touch money? How do they touch economics? How do they touch finance? And so that's the core. And we just spent a year learning everything that can go wrong. And so it feels right to me 
to start with the basics, the fundamentals of just have a practice of building. Have a practice. 2023 is the year where if you're still here, if you're still in this industry, you have no choice but to make things that make sense. You're not going to get away with Ponzi games and tokens. You're not going to get away with arbitraging public markets because interest rates are too low because you're not going to get away with a consumer profile where people aren't price sensitive and are willing to just download stuff and buy NFTs and be very risk seeking because everybody's been burnt, which means you've got to figure out how to make things that make sense immediately. You know, and I try to write about this and I talk a lot about this. And when I interview people, I try to extract from them their view on getting to conclusions and outcomes and strategies that are real, that are not a hallucination that is meant to entrap you. You know, and so what I want to try and do, and I don't know if it's going to be in a consecutive series of conversations or if maybe we're just going to sequence these things over time. What I want to try to do is have a series of foundational discussions where we talk about business models, we talk about building out different functions within particular companies, and those functions could be, you know, how do I build marketing and acquire customers? How do I build a sales team and grow that sales team? And how do I think about going into enterprise? Or perhaps on the regulatory side, you know, how do I build compliance and how do I do this for different industries and how do I get regulated or not regulated and so on. And so we need to get back to these fundamentals of why we're here and then we need to build up our skill set in a pretty direct way of how to actually execute because 2023, you have to execute. There's nothing else. There's no other game for any of us to do other than just execute on raw fundamentals. And often I try to get at the fundamentals a little bit sideways in these conversations where you're supposed to impute the lessons. You're supposed to hear through the language and the narratives that people tell you and lift those lessons for yourselves and decode them out of the things that people tell you. Well, in this series, we're going to try to be a little bit more straightforward and Perhaps not as straightforward as you'd like, not as direct, and here are the steps to do it, but we're going to try and address some of the key components of what I think one should be thinking about when approaching all these questions. So with that, let's look at the first question, which is how to design your fintech business model or your DeFi business model, your, how to design and how to think about a company's relationship to its customers, to the demand that those customers form, and then to the economics, the underlying financial reality of how those customers behave. And so that's the first part we're going to focus on. I'm also putting this into the long takes. So for listeners of the podcast, make sure 
to subscribe at fintechblueprint.com so that not only can you get the transcripts of these conversations, but you can get a structured written version of these discussions, as well as lots of links to illustrations of the concepts that enrich the information and make it more dense and more useful. Okay, so the first concept I want to talk about is demand and the relationship of demand to a business model. For those of you that study economics, you know that prices and quantities, they clear at the intersection of the demand curve and the supply curve. So somebody supplies goods and services, somebody else in this population demands goods and services, there's an aggregation of both of those, and then there's a clearing of commerce at the equilibrium of you know, all demand and all supply. That's abstraction. When you go to the level down to the work of a startup or a work of a company, there's a lot we've learned from customer centricity. And customer centricity is an obsession with what users and customers and prospects want. And the separation in thinking is between a product that is built for the mass market that is pushed versus reverse engineering the problems and feature sets that customers have and designing for that and putting the customer need at the center. And so it's worth meditating on it just for a second because it has a historical context too. I often talk about this as manufacturing versus distribution and manufacturing not just for financial products, Although within financial products, if you've ever worked at a bank, you know exactly what a manufacturing-led distribution strategy is. That manufacturing-led distribution strategy is, I'm Wells Fargo, and I'm going to generate lots and lots of customer accounts and push them through my branches at people, whether the people that come into my branches want those accounts or not. I am you know, Goldman Sachs or Lehman Brothers and I have a brokerage business and I'm going to push, I'm going to sell as much product, you know, I'm going to avoid being a fiduciary, I'm going to sell as much financial product to people as they can afford. And so a manufacturer comes from a generation of business where the best thing to do was to aim at the center of a population in general. And so if you think about, for example, the media industry, you know, there's a long period of time where there were only, you know, five or 10 channels on the television. And that was it. There was not YouTube streams or individual TikTok influencers or any sort of like micro nano video generation. There were only these five or 10 channels, which means that for a whole population of people, you could divide them into five archetypes. And the way the channels compete is that they're all trying to move their content their product to be the most average thing that everybody likes. And so you have this essentially collapse into the middle of all tastes, of all personalities. And so instead of going long tail and niche, what you do is you go right to the center and you try to dominate the mass market by being as broad as possible in how you please others. And so in this way, you're manufacturing a product that is then pushed out into the world. And the pushing is what matters because you actually, you don't even 
tune the thing that much because you know where you're aiming sort of statistically. Now, of course, going from those five or 10 channels to a thousand cable channels to a million YouTube channels to a hundred million social media accounts, you get to quite a different result. And what the internet has done is empowered the long tail of content distribution and product building, and then allowed platforms to sit in between that long tail and the products made for them, right? So Amazon for commerce, Alibaba in China, and financial for finance in there, or lots of media companies and social media companies where each individual at scale is not getting the mass market product. They are getting a product customized for them uh, one in a billion type customization that is done using large scale artificial intelligence. And so you've gone through a mass market to putting the customer as like the brain of the commercial machine. And this commercial machine generates financial and economic activity around each person that is plugged into the mass technology platform of you know Google or TikTok or Facebook or you know pick your advertising company. So that's a really big distinction. And so in this distinction where we are now, you have to understand that your first hat trick is to look at the shape of demand. And you can't be mass market. You can't be generic. You can't say, I'm going to provide bank accounts or investment accounts and hope that means something because that's just adding another drop of water into the ocean. What you need to do instead is be extremely specific about personally experiencing the shape of demand. How do you see this? For example, you can see this if you go to the websites of Stripe or Drive Wealth or Green Dot or Affirm or any of these other embedded finance companies. And you can look at the language that they use to signal to their prospective customers how embedded finance makes those customers perform better, right? So slightly old example, but one that I think still works is embedding brokerage into a new bank, right? So Drive Wealth embeds brokerage into lots of different places and one of their customer profiles would be a bank or a commercial platform, whatever it is. This tells you, this is the negative space that tells you the shape of demand for Drive Wealth. It tells you who shows up and what it is that they do on that website. And that's just one way. We'll talk about some others in a second. So one of the dangers you could have in thinking about demand, you could apply rubrics or you could apply previous experience incorrectly. So let's say you have a senior management team and you've had experience from running some big business at UBS or Goldman Sachs, or maybe you're familiar with banking from Wells Fargo, or maybe you are an executive from Visa and you know payment processing and all of this. And you will think about the shape of your industry, the integrations between the different parts of the industry, the structure, the architecture of payments, investments, banking, wealth management, whatever it is. And you'll also think about the operation of your large business, which has already established how to serve your customers. And so the mistake would be to say, oh, 
we served people in this way, in this configuration, with this brand, and therefore that is how a new business should come at it as well. That it's the same value chain that we should use, that it's the same way that we should brand, it's the same way that we should position, and the customers will behave the same way towards us. And of course, getting stuck in that prior experience can be really detrimental because you are literally blinded from seeing the discovery process that you have to go through. And that discovery process is all about, it's like the scientific method. So you can think about the often cited lean startup method methodology. The lean startup methodology, and we're not going to go through the whole thing here, you can find a lot of things about it elsewhere, but the lean startup methodology is all about how do you take the smallest step, how can you create the smallest, the minimum viable product, and test it with people. You know, it's a picture on a napkin that you bring to people at Starbucks, that you meet at Starbucks, and you ask them ways to validate if they would use your product or not. Right, in some sort of demographic. So the Lean Startup methodology is all about disproving your hypotheses as fast as possible. And so the thing that brings together a good demand discovery practice or customer discovery practice is being out there in the market doing stuff, talking to prospects, talking to people. Maybe you are really good at marketing and you know Google Analytics inside out or Google Ads inside out. And in that case, you know the digital version of the napkin would be to throw up a landing page with a product value proposition. What could it be? It could be a prepaid card that also gives you a mortgage discount, mortgage rate discount, or a crypto asset that lets you spin up your own BNPL app. I don't know, this is obviously silly. The point being is you could get all of these ideas generated, you could create landing pages, you can buy Google Ads to drive people to those landing pages, and then see if those people sign up and convert to be on a waiting list for that product. Like, Do people actually care for your idea? And there are ways to validate this before you build anything. And the reason for that is to start feeling the shape of that demand curve. You're splashing around and you are going in the right place and going in the wrong place. And by doing that, you actually get to see if your assumptions about the world are right or if they're wrong. If you never ask that question, if you never try to validate things or if you never get out and talk to people, you know, if you're trying to do a big enterprise, you think you're going to have an enterprise SaaS business where it's an embedded finance payment processing, wholesale banking, controlled by NFTs on the Solana chain, right? If you don't go out and talk to the wholesale banking providers out there that are running this or the technologists in the banks who are in charge of technology integration, you are wasting everybody's time having hallucinations that you're putting into a PowerPoint. Spend the time to actually test your ideas. And so by doing this, you start to actually experience what the shape of demand is like. And at some point, you're actually doing enough work to see prospects and to see what it is that they want and to create hypotheses and build at first services and then potentially products that would fulfill the desires of these prospects. And that gets you or it starts getting you towards the concept of product market fit. 
Now, the concept of product market fit, again, is a very broadly discussed concept, like it's everywhere, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But the core of it is that there's a different kind of feeling and velocity and shape in a startup, in your company, when you've actually got people on the hook. When you've like actually figured out that there is some sort of problem that your prospect or your target customer has, and you've designed something that answers that problem, and then all of a sudden, in a kind of a recurring way, people are starting to show up. Now, getting to product market fit, you're not going to get this on the first try, and that's why people say you're going to have to pivot your company. Or you know, we were doing this, a company I know quite well called Lambda Labs, a great AI-focused business, started out creating a social network where you use uh, DeepStyle as a filter to make photos look really cool. And they did this in 2014, I believe, really early on, had 300,000 users of the social network where they were making images that were AI-based. And of course, they're early, 2014, right? It's 2023 now, and you have this generative AI explosion. Technology is ready. Back then, it wasn't. So they pivoted towards a model that was an infrastructure model. They realized that the hardware that they built to process all of this AI stuff was actually much more in demand and potentially much more profitable than the consumer social network that they put together. And so the business that they found through this pivot ended up being massively more valuable. And that's the only way you get to that outcome is by doing the work, by having tried to create the consumer business, by realizing, hey, nobody's paying for this It's not going to be big, but then we do have this other thing. And oh boy, isn't it weird that all these universities and hospitals and so on want to pay us for this hardware infrastructure? Maybe that's going to take you not just one pivot, maybe it's going to take you 20 pivots. But what it means is that you're constantly re-navigating yourself to the shape of demand. You're constantly changing your perspective and asking new questions. And you should be guided by the question of the consumer surplus, meaning what is the value that you're creating? How much economic oxygen is there in the pools of demand that you find? Like, is it going to sustain you for long? This is a question that blockchain companies have a real issue with because they don't think about market size well enough. They expect market size to materialize because things feel promising or good or hopeful. And so they're hopping from one pool of demand, a little bit of oxygen here, to another pool of demand, a little bit of oxygen here, right? Like, can we sell some consulting services to enterprise? Can we do some NFT issuance? Maybe it's ICOs in the past. Like, trying to navigate an emerging platform shift, like a change in technology, while also finding economic models is really tough. So you should be looking for demand that is also sufficiently economic that you can actually match your company size and your capabilities against that demand. And this is, of course, it's super easy to say, but it's really hard to execute. Now, one place you can extract that economic surplus is actually from going against things that you know people need already, where you're not really dealing with uncertainty, where you are dealing with repeatable financial patterns that are ingrained in the human animal. We've talked about this before. So things like we need to pay. Once we pay, we need to bank and to save. 
And once we've saved, then other people need to borrow and maybe we need to lend. And then once we have capital, then we, we trade it, we invest it. And if there's risks to our money or to our life, we need to insure against it. Like these things, they emerge out of the shape of human society. They emerge out of the fact that people are creative, that they build stuff. They make things, they exchange them, they have commerce, and we have money as an abstraction. And then once we have money as a layer of abstraction, all these financial needs emerge over and over and over again. It doesn't matter what century you're in. You're going to have commerce, you're going to need to pay, you're going to need to save, and so on and so forth. So we know that there is an established pool of demand. This is societal level, kind of 20% of GDP type of thing. And against that, what you could do is you could just simply apply different technological models, right? So in one model, it might be the bank branch, and in the other model, it might be the neobank. So you haven't rediscovered that all of a sudden people need to save, like you always knew that. A digital bank isn't learning some profound thing about well, millennials need to save, but Gen Xers, they didn't need to save. That's not true. What those new companies are learning is the application of a platform shift to that same desire, to that same demand pool. And the platform shift in this case, you know, in the case of a Revolut or in the case of a Betterment or a Robinhood or so on, that platform shift is mobile devices and the web. And the adoption of those instead of going to have a human interaction at a bank branch or something similar. So you can see that the risk and the reward for the risk is around transforming that kind of relationship between a customer that needs a service. I need to save money so I can buy a house or I want to retire or I need to borrow, you know, as Green Sky, I need to borrow some money for a home improvement of taking that demand and instead of solving it through a traditional business model, you're solving it through a new technological paradigm, which is the using cloud processing and then using mobile as a delivery mechanism. But you have not taken a risk on whether or not the demand will be there. You know it will be there and you probably know with good certainty how much it costs, right? You can go on Google Ads and you can figure out how much it costs to buy a lead or you can go to Credit Karma and you know exactly how much it costs to buy a lead. We'll talk about marketing in a separate conversation, you know, but it's important to at least anchor in how do you attach a business model to the needs of your potential customers. Another approach is to look at demand through the lens of novelty, not through like these are repeatable patterns and we know where they are and we know how many mortgages people need to do per year and so on. But instead to look at the platform shifts, the transitions, the weird things that are going on where demand is uncertain, like what is the demand for iPhones going to be? What is the demand for ad technology and so on? And so you look at places where you have uncertainty and you have open frontiers. You would call this blue ocean opportunities instead of red ocean, which have lots of competition. Blue ocean is open. Nobody's there yet, right? And so I gave the example of the iPhone. Another toy example would be cases for iPhones or iPhone protectors. You know, the first iPhone comes out and you go, ah, I'm going to go after this opportunity to create, print your own case protectors for iPhones. Maybe that device will be popular. Maybe it won't. You don't know. You don't know how much it will grow. 
And so that bet is very uncertain in terms of its exposure, but it has asymmetric upside. So if we look at things that are similar in fintech and in DeFi, I'll give you an example. You know, so one of the transitions has been the automation of the CFO technology stack. So the chief financial officer at a company uses likely spreadsheets and all sorts of reconciliation systems. So fintech has built out a whole bunch of payment operations, payroll processing, and other integrated systems to help the CFO function of businesses. And in many ways, small businesses do these things in a much more integrated, automated, customer-centric ways. Now, the same thing, is happening to decentralized autonomous organizations in Web3, DAOs. So DAOs are like small businesses, except they are in this internet digital world, and they also have payroll. DAOs have lots of people who are doing stuff and want to be paid in tokens, so they need automated payroll. DAOs also need to figure out how to take the tokens that they pay people and convert them into spending ability, into debit cards or credit cards or other ways for the people who are paid in those tokens to actually go out and participate in the real-world economy and buy sandwiches to eat, not just sandwiches as NFTs to collect. And so there's a whole series of things which are solutions for DAOs to continue financial operations. Now, it's really interesting. I love this theme. It's fascinating. I really hope it works. It tells me that DAOs are like the economic unit at the core of uh, a Web3 economy. But maybe it's totally wrong. Maybe DAOs are a flash in the pan like ICOs, and you know, from now till never again, these things will just kind of die and be regulated into oblivion, and nobody will open Discord ever again. I don't think so, but it's possible. And so all of these investments into building out financial and technical infrastructure for DAOs to work and to intermediate labor of lots of people together, that's kind of like building the iPhone case. You hope that the distribution there. You hope that there will be more DAOs and you hope that more people will use DAOs as a place where they work. But you don't know that this will happen, right? So you are dealing with uncertain demand. And so that's actually really key to risk and return profiles too. You know, another way to look at it is comparing Betterment and Coinbase. So both companies I love, and, and also Coinbase to MetaMask. So Betterment built a digital wealth, digital investing service against the demand of mass affluent or retail investors who have a problem. And the problem is, I want to save enough money to do X, to retire, to buy this, to, you know, to have enough money to be free, whatever. In the words of investment management, it's people who want an asset allocation or a managed portfolio. And so Betterment has figured out how to use the platform shift of mobile and interactive web applications powered by cloud services to re-offer the product of wealth management to many more people at a cheaper price. They did not have to figure out who wanted it. I mean, a little bit. They had to figure out if people on the internet would want financial services. But it's not a big question. Few things were more obvious than in 2009, will people you know, bank and invest on the internet? And so Betterment's a valuable company. They've done a fantastic job in execution. But they're not as valuable as Coinbase. 
which has a slightly later vintage, but a really similar core kind of hypothesis, which is that, yes, people in this demographic, retail, mass affluent, millennial, online only, digital native, whatever, not only do they want to access their financial store, stuff they buy on the internet through the web or through the phone, but they also want to own digital assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum and ETH and so on. Now, you can see the amount of risk that Coinbase took was much greater. They bet not only on you're going to buy this finance stuff on the web, they also bet on, and the finance stuff you're going to buy on the web is totally crazy crypto assets. The TM, totally crazy crypto assets. These digital assets are supposed to be a better psychographic fit for this target demographic, because not only are you accessing them digitally, but they are themselves novel technological assets, right? So it's two layers of invention. And it's almost exponential volatility as a result. Much bigger upside than a pure robo-advisor, but also bigger downside when it goes down. Now, if you want to compare that even more to something that's taken an even bigger risk, take a look at MetaMask. MetaMask, as a crypto wallet, bets not on the fact that people want to access things through the web in order to invest and to hold them. MetaMask bets on the fact that the internet itself is changing profoundly from Web 2, the internet of attention and media, to Web 3, the internet of digital ownership. And the internet of digital ownership is going to be so big you know, billions of users, that a crypto wallet is as valuable or as important to that whole experience as a browser. And so that's the core value proposition of MetaMask to enable the usage of decentralized applications through the keys of the crypto wallet and the digital assets, tokens, and digital objects, NFTs, that are inside of that wallet. You can see how that's so different from I'm a consumer and I have a pain point and the pain point is I want to buy digital assets to get rich, right? This is, I'm an early adopter of technologically wondrous decentralized applications and even though they're clunky, I get pleasure from using them in the same way that somebody who wants to be an early adopter of video games is going to enjoy Pong or the NES Mario Brothers. So it's a very different proposition. And this, over time, if the bet is right, that platform shift bet is going to be much bigger as an outcome, right? It's an internet scale bet, not a brokerage scale bet. However, the bet can, is also much more likely to be wrong. And so when you're building your company, you have to be honest with yourself about what it is that you're building and what the shape of demand is and how much it is there. Some people will say, there will never be a Web3 of digital sovereignty and self-sovereignty and digital objects. That's just, you're an insane person. And other people will say, that's the only thing that will be. You know, our, our stop in Web2 is a ghoulish nightmare that will seize and finally we are liberated from it. And so you can see how although the product screens and some of the words even might be really similar in Betterment and Coinbase and MetaMask, you know, they all report your balance, they all show your transactions, they all have a chart of how much something is valuable. The thing that they're congruent to, the idea that they're built against is radically different. And it has radically different implications as a result. 
both in terms of how to build a company as well as you know how to build a company like you can linearly scale your cost as your revenue grows in a linear predictable way for betterment versus you have to be super lean through the bear markets for a MetaMask. And then as the bull markets come, you have to heavily invest and get all of the long tail features, right? There's lots and lots of implications based on what you select as your opportunity. So now that we've got our idea of the shape of our demand and we understand what a customer need is and we understand some of the work that can go into extracting that hypothesis, let's end with the idea of economic models getting attached to that opportunity. And this can be a bit of a tricky concept, but there's two things I want to pull out here. So the first thing is how to actually go about surviving in creating your company. People have this imagination of how you just have an idea, you get a PowerPoint together, you show up to a venture investor, they write you a check, you're funded, you start drawing salaries, you hire people, you build an amazing product, you raise your next round, you sell some secondary, and then you go public, voila, it's amazing. It's not how it is. Because you're spending a lot more time to be in the wilderness and to be wrong, right? And, and kind of I've explained before that it's really important to put in the time to learn where you're wrong because being wrong is the only way that you can actually identify a path to being right. You are traveling by negative consent. You need the negative information of things having gone wrong to explain to you the right search space. No one gets it right on the first try. Okay, so how do you actually do that if you're not set up to raise a gigantic check off the bat and instantly succeed? And the answer is, you don't have to start in designing everything for venture capital. You can go that route, and you can optimize yourself for an angel list raise and all of this stuff. But even then, I think the best practice is to figure out how your experiments that are extracting the information out of the market about what to do and what is valuable and where the oxygen is can bring you revenue on which you can feed yourself. You're hunting you're looking for opportunity, and you're doing this either by, as I said, those landing pages where you're trying to get lists of people to, to sign up for things, or maybe you're doing that by doing enterprise sales and going door to door and getting commitments from banks and other companies for proof of concepts, you know, $250,000 to develop this or whatever it is. On the retail side, on the previous example, people are signing up on the waiting list. Maybe they'll pay a little bit for a PDF with information in it. Maybe they will subscribe to a media asset. You can try and figure out different models. So in the early stages, while you're fumbling around in the dark, go bespoke. Take any of the money that you can find. Get any of the revenue that's available and do the work the grindy, unpleasant work that nobody likes, the bespoke consulting with a terrible, abusive client. I think this is a story of Cross River Bank. I'm not sure, but I think it's Cross River Bank, where the founder was actually really purposeful in doing every single job in the bank in order to understand how it works, including manually doing all of the compliance work bit by bit 
in order to understand how to automate the whole thing so that the bank could be routed up into automated workflows, connected into APIs, and sold as embedded finance infrastructure to the rest of the fintech industry, right? And then you take deposits and, and you take net interest on the deposits and you build out a big base and all of that. But before you get to have your presentation with, I'm going to have a bank that other people can rent, you need to spend a year working every janitor job in that bank, or if you're doing investment management, you need to spend the time reconciling the spreadsheets between the custodians. Or if you're doing you know, payment processing, you need to negotiate all the deals between the technology providers in different countries. You know, If you want to look at, let's say, the crypto on-ramps, MoonPay, in every single country, they have to understand the local regulations of what they're selling and how and where the things break and so on. That grind and that work you have to put in because that's the learning that's going to take you out of that first phase of everything is bespoke, everything is services, to seeing emergent patterns of what people actually pay for. And I've had the experience doing this in a couple of different places. With the robo-advisor, I had the experience building out a private label platform for the robo-advisor and seeing how the demand went from very low to very high as people understood what the technology was doing for them. And they started to come in and ask for more and more of it and in particular packages. And so I started to build those packages. Or when I was in the equity research business and I had started to build data products there was a lot of amorphous prospects coming in who wanted to talk, who wanted to have a consulting session, who wanted to talk strategy or get a speech. And then all of a sudden, some of them learned that we had a data product. And so out of every 20 that came in through the door, 15 wanted the data product, five wanted the bespoke stuff. And I could only invest or choose to invest in the data product because I saw the shape of demand coming through. And so that's the second step out of services, out of flailing around and trying to figure out what people want. You end up literally experiencing that. Now, there are some situations where this is unbelievably extreme, right? So if it's Google or if it's Facebook or if it's MetaMask, there's not as much of this kind of waffling around in the beginning of not knowing what it is that prospects are going to choose. But I think it's such a low probability event that you have figured out Google or Facebook or MetaMask. And in fact, Facebook was going into the existing demand space of MySpace. It was doing MySpace better. And Google was, was not the first engine. It was going into the existing search space with a better solution. You know, so they were not actually taking a risk where they didn't know what prospects wanted. So again, going back to the place of now you're starting to see repeatable patterns. As you see repeatable patterns, automate. Turn the product that you have from a spoke answer to a machine answer. And one of my favorite stories, again, I don't know how much of this is true or not, but it is in my mind, so I'll tell it, is from Second Market. So Barry Silbert's first business, or first business that I know of, which of course now he runs Digital Currency Group and Coindesk and GBTC and all the problems there. But you know, Second Market was about exchanging secondary shares now owned by one of the large American exchanges. And you could start and say, 
hey, he's got to build an exchange and get the entity set up and design a platform and all of this stuff. Or you could just say, here's a spreadsheet. Go get the buyers and go get the sellers and manually do the spreadsheet of matching them and take a fee if it connects. And so that's that transition point. When you're starting to see repeatable patterns in people coming to you, you can go from having to do things in a spreadsheet or having to do things in a napkin or gluing it together and testing demand in some way and actually turning it into code that scales, that is a pleasure to use, and that is likely to retain people. You know, and that's also when your numbers should be starting to show product market fit type of characteristics. You should have retention, flattening out. You should have strong growth. You should have recommendations between people and so on and so forth. Now, that's the transition from services to products. But it's important to also understand is that there are very good scalable businesses that are not product manufacturing businesses, that are not just software product businesses where you buy a product. Like a piece of media, like a research report, theoretically is a product. Like I could scalably sell you, the listener, a product packaged as how to start a fintech company, and I wouldn't have to do any work, and this would scale well because I know there's repeatable demand. But there's much better businesses than this. So, for example, a platform business where you get in the middle of a manufacturer and somebody who wants to buy from the manufacturer, the client. As a platform, YouTube, Facebook, right? You're creating the intermediating layer that connects the buyers and the sellers. Obviously, you know, the NASDAQ, the exchanges, the market venues, and so on. So, a platform business, maybe you have an idea that there's going to be a need for research reports that say how to start a fintech company, well, maybe what you want to build isn't the actual research product. What you want to build is the library of all providers of all these research products. And so you aggregate them and you have a marketplace. Or maybe you want to be a consultant that helps people select things on the marketplace that has aggregated all the things. And maybe it's not a consultant doing it through a human way, but rather it's some machine aggregation algorithm that helps people curate things on the platform into a newsfeed, right? So Facebook before the newsfeed, and then you add newsfeed on top as a feature. And of course, that's led to the acquisition and integration of the newsfeed into Facebook, which has led to everything else from Instagram to TikTok, and in large part, consumer artificial intelligence. So you have different options once you have identified what it is that people want and what they're showing up for in order to capture that opportunity and build something valuable. So the last thing I want to talk about is the nature of economic flows. And because we're talking about financial businesses and not just generally any startup, this is really important. Financial services businesses that have to do with capital, in my mind, can be split into three different grains or textures. The first is money in motion, and that's a payments business or a trading business, a brokerage business, where you want turnover. So any company that wants to see transaction fees, whether it's interchange inside of Visa or whether it's a commission or a spread inside of Robinhood or a commission on Fidelity or something like that, these are money in motion businesses. Then you have things that are money at rest. So if you know a bank account, or an investment account, 
where the money is just sitting there and fees are taken off the assets or the net interest, that's money at rest. And then finally, you've got money at risk. And there's other ways to talk about it. And money at risk is about underwriting. It's about using capital to transform, transmutate the exposure that a particular party takes, right? So I need a loan to buy something and I'm willing to pay back for that loan and there's a time component to it. So lending, borrowing, underwriting, or there's some chance that my house will be on fire because I live in California, so I want insurance against that. These are things that transform capital and transform risk. And each of these three models, motion, rest, and risk, they have very different economic incentives for the businesses that are created. Some businesses will want to create lots of activity. Others will want to minimize the activity. Some businesses will have a giant liability that they've taken on and they'll book a lot of revenue up front, but then they'll be hit by liability in a couple of years to come. And there's uncertainty around that. So in designing the economic model, I think it's super important to create fees and to create economics that flow with how the natural grain of that economic activity looks and feels. So for example, putting subscription fees, like monthly subscription fees on a trading business makes no sense to me. It's just going to be gamed. It won't work out. Even though it's trendy, it's against the nature of the type of activity that's happening on the platform. In some ways, it's deceptive and can be bad for the customer. At the same time, you can also have businesses that are not participating in the money flows. I think these generally are less valuable within fintech, but you could have CRMs, you got performance reporting businesses and so on that charge you per user, that charge you per seat, some sort of software as a service type technology provider. Those are great, they're important, but they're not going to be touching the actual money. And so in some ways, it's less important to align them. Lastly, there is the token aspect of Web3. So this is a new and emerging way to track and understand value. And here, what's going on is that the dynamics of the money flows isn't just in the underlying activity that your company provides. I provide an exchange, therefore I want lots of flow. But it's in the dynamics of your token as it connects to the rest of the Web3 capital markets. So you would be designing not only for the underlying activity in your product, but in the ways that your community can use the token within your product as well as without your product. So both within to power up certain functionality or certain governance, as well as without, meaning you know, how does it connect to the rest of the decentralized finance market structure? And so I'll do a, another session in much more detail on crypto economics, but there are now ways to attach to even broader financial flows for DeFi projects than fintech companies used to have as an opportunity. And so thank you so much for sticking with me. I think this is a fundamental session around recognizing the shape of demand, figuring out how to wrap around it, and what kind of activities to do in order to maximize your exposure to the things that are valuable, and then ways to attach economic models to it and build something that can actually last. As we go through this year, 
which is going to be quite challenging, I believe. It'll be really important to find real economic value and build your projects against it in ways that are sustainable and that have real usage and real engagement. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the Fintech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time. <music>